Paul wanted to visit Rome. He realized the city's strategic importance. And he had heard glowing reports about a growing church at the heart of the empire. Paul was spending the spring of 58 AD in the Greek town of Corinth. One day he heard that a friend from a neighboring village, the village of Sincrea, was headed for Rome. And Paul asked Phoebe to deliver for him a letter. At the time, Paul was en route to Jerusalem. He'd been warned of danger awaiting him, possibly even death. As far as he knew, this letter to the Romans might just be his last opportunity to expound the truths that God had revealed to him. You know, it was the skeptic, Renan, who commented, When Phoebe sailed from the port of Corinth, she carried beneath the folds of her robe the whole future of Christian theology. And how right he was. What Paul thought was his final opportunity became his finest effort. Romans was Paul's theological masterpiece. Almost every Bible doctrine finds its best defense and fullest explanation in Paul's letter to the Romans. This one book has single-handedly sparked revivals and altered history and transformed billions of lives down through the ages. The great preacher John Chrysostom, he thought so highly of the book of Romans that he read it once a week for 18 years. Donald Barnhouse said that the Bible of any believer should be so worn that it automatically falls open to the book of Romans. For the next few weeks, we will be gleaning from this field of plenty. Well, the book begins, Paul. You know, the ancients began their letters the way we end ours today, with a signature. Some letters, since letters in ancient times were written on scrolls, they would put the signature first. So you didn't have to unroll the scroll to identify the author. Paul begins, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. You know, he could have introduced himself as Paul, eminent theologian, warrior of the faith, receiver of revelation, missionary to the world, founder of many churches. Instead, he opts for something much simpler. He says, bondservant, literally love slave. And it refers to a practice found in Exodus chapter 21. In ancient Israel, if you couldn't pay off your debts, you didn't file for bankruptcy. You became a slave and you worked off your debts. Some slaves fared better in the house of a benevolent master than they did on their own. And in such cases, when the debt was paid, it was not uncommon for the slave to choose to remain with his former creditor. The owner would then take him to the doorpost of his house, and he'd press his ear against the doorpost, and then he would drive an awl through his earlobe. It was his pierced ear that became a symbol for the servant's voluntary love for his master. You know, you and I have a similar relationship with Jesus. He has forgiven us of our debt. We owe him our all. We're slaves to the master's will. Yet once we spend time in his house, we realize just how gracious and generous he is to his slaves. Life with Jesus is far better than we could ever achieve on our own. We may start out serving the Lord out of obligation, but ultimately we come to serve him out of appreciation. Like Paul, we become love slaves of Jesus. 
Paul was also called to be an apostle, he tells us. Apostle is from a word which means to be sent out. Paul wasn't a self-appointed prophet. He was called and commissioned by God himself. You know, you can tell if a pastor was sent or if he just went. Well, Paul was sent by God. And Paul was also separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Notice, Paul was devoted to one message, the gospel. And the gospel of God is all about his son, Jesus. Notice the three truths that Paul mentions about Jesus. He is revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. He reigns on earth according to the lineage of King David. And he has been resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, the case for Jesus as Messiah is airtight. He claimed to be the Lord of the universe and Savior of the world through prophecy, through pedigree, and through power. And notice verse 5. Here's the theme of Romans. Through him we have received grace. Grace is love that we don't deserve. It's love that we could never earn. Grace is God's love. It's love that's on the house. Remember now, Paul started out as a Jewish rabbi. He lived under the law. He felt pressured to perform. He tried to keep the rules and chalk up points with God. What a relief it was when he discovered grace. When we embrace Jesus, he loves us despite all that we've done. He loves us despite who we were. He loves us in spite what we didn't do. You see, God didn't ask Paul, nor does he ask us to try. He asks us to trust. Salvation was not a do, it was a done. God called Paul not to responsibility, but to simply respond to him. This is grace. Once a young man, he fell in love with a wicked, vile woman. His mother disliked her and tried to break up their relationship. The man ignored his mom and moved in with the woman. One night, the vengeful woman, she got the young man drunk. She told him the only way he could prove his love for her was to kill his mom, cut out her heart, and bring it back as a trophy. I told you this woman was evil. Well, the young man, he staggered through the streets to his mother's house. He didn't went in with a butcher knife. He stabbed his own mom, and then he carved out her heart. But as he walked back with his prize in hand, he stumbled. He fell. He dropped his mother's heart onto the ground. And as the legend goes, when he reached down to pick it up, the bleeding heart spoke to him and said, My son, are you hurt? And this is exactly how cruel we've been to Jesus, is it not? We drove nails into his hands and feet. We broke his heart. And yet he asks each of us, are you hurt? This is God's grace. It's the father kissing his prodigal son. It's Jesus telling the adulteress, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's his prayer from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see, grace changed everything for Paul. It turned labor into love. It turned chores into cheers. 
It turned burdens into blessings. Don't be surprised if the book of Romans has that same kind of impact on you. Well, verse 5 tells us, through him, through Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Notice God's grace is for all nations. The gospel of Jesus is impartial. It's grace for every race. And now Paul addresses his readers. He says, to all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. Now throughout history, the church, in the church, saints have been thought of as special Christians. The saints are the all-stars. You know, they're the hall of famers among us. But not so. That's not biblical. In fact, the word means set apart. You know, you either belong to Jesus or you don't. You're set apart to Jesus or you're not. You're his or you're not. You could say you're either a saint or you're an ain't. There's no in-between. We're all saints in Christ Jesus. And Paul greets these saints. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Here are the bookends of faith. Grace and peace. The origination and the destination. We start out with grace. And we end with peace. And he speaks of the Romans, verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. Notice the church in Rome had developed quite a reputation in the ancient world. He says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by some means, now at last, may I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. You know, the church of Rome had been spoken of around the world. But here's one of the reasons. Paul spoke of it often before the throne of God. Though he had never visited the church, he prayed for them diligently. You know, think back to Acts chapter 2, verse 10. There we're told that present in Jerusalem were people from Rome. There on the day of Pentecost, there was a group of Jews from Rome who had been filled with the Holy Spirit. Perhaps they'd been converted by Peter's sermon. They may have returned to Rome to start a church. And over the years, this church became famous. Not for its architecture, not for its pastor, not for its size not for its organization, it was renowned for its faith. You know, if our church ever becomes famous, I hope it's because of our faith. Paul prayed for the church in Rome. He wanted to visit, and he tells us why, verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. You know, usually folks flock to Rome for amusement. It was home to the famous forum in the Colosseum. NASCAR fans like to check out the chariot races at the Circus Maximus. But in the belly of this vast city, beneath all of the glitz and all of the glamour, were a small group of people precious and important to God. And Paul desired to visit Rome so that he could build up these believers. 
He wanted to both give to them and receive from them. Hey, this is what church is all about. I hope you notice that church is like a blood bank. Sometimes you come to make a donation. Other times you come to receive a transfusion. But you're always giving and receiving. This is church. Paul said he hoped to come so that he could strengthen the mutual faith of both you and me. Verse 13 Now, I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also, just as among the other Gentiles. I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise. You see, Paul wanted to get to Rome, but he'd been busy elsewhere. Paul had sensed a responsibility to all men. Paul owed God for his grace, but his debt was made payable to his fellow man. You see, this is how we say thanks to Jesus for all he's done to us, by loving the folks he died to save. Paul had tasted God's grace, and here's how he responds. So as much as is in me, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome also. Now, history is well documented that long before the Goths and the Vandals rode their horses into Rome, the city had collapsed internally. Rome was rich and privileged. Her wealth had made her fat and lazy. Rome was a spoiled brat. She was constantly lusting for new ways to be pampered and entertained. The Romans became lawless out of sheer boredom. Tacitus once wrote of the city's prevailing attitude. He says, the greater the infamy, the wilder the delight. That's how they viewed their indulgences and their sins. Roman civilization fell victim to moral collapse. You see, here's what's hap- what happened in Rome. Rome lost respect for human life. Babies were seen as an inconvenience. They were left on the steps of the Colosseum and then sold as slaves. Marital fidelity was an unheard of virtue. The debutantes of Rome, they dated their years by the names of their husbands. Fourteen of the first fifteen emperors became so bored with their natural appetite for women that they sought perverse pleasures in homosexual acts. Imagine the wife of Caesar Claudius, the empress Agrippina. She would leave the palace at night and work the brothels for the sake of sheer lust. You've heard of Skid Row? Well, welcome to Skid Rome. Rome was raunchy and rowdy. It was a horrible place, and yet Paul wasn't intimidated. In fact, Paul was ready to preach in Rome, for he was proud of the gospel and he was confident of its power. He says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Paul was confident in the gospel. He was ready to preach it to Rome, for he knew that the gospel is the greatest change agent known to humankind. The gospel is powerful. The truth that Jesus died to forgive our sin, 
that he rose to live in our hearts. It has the ability to transform people's lives, to transform culture and history and the future. When churches stray from the gospel, they do a disservice to both God and mankind. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. William Gladstone once said, Talk about the questions of the day. There is but one question, and that is the gospel. It can and will correct everything needing correction. Hey, you and I, we need to trust in the power of the gospel. We need to share it with our friends. Are you proud enough to promote the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, beginning in chapter 3, Paul is going to explain to us the gospel. But first, his strategy is to convince us of our need for it. It's been said, before the good news can be received, the bad news has to be believed. A person doesn't sense his need for a Savior until he first admits that he's a sinner. So this is what Paul is going to do now in the first three chapters of the book. He's going to convince us of our sin. In the last half of chapter 1, Paul dissects the downward spiral of Roman culture. He's going to discuss the three stages of their moral and spiritual disintegration. In verse 18 to 21, he shows how the world suppresses the truth. In verses 22 to 27, how it confuses the truth. And then in verses 28 through 32, how it transgresses or violates the truth. And this is what the world does today. It will suppress the truth and then confuse the truth and then violate or transgress against the truth. Paul begins, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now verse 17 told us that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. In verse 18, heaven reveals the wrath of God. Reject or ignore God's righteousness and you'll be subject to his wrath. Once there was a country church that sat next door to a parcel of land owned by an avid atheist. This was a mean, ornery fella. And every Sunday morning he would rev up his tractor just to try to drown out the pastor's message. When harvest time came, his fields would always yield a bumper crop. And he considered it proof that God didn't exist, that he was on his own, so he didn't need God. Well, the atheist, he wrote this haughty, hateful letter, boasting in his bountiful harvest. But I love how the pastor responded. He wrote back a single sentence. He said, dear sir, God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. <laughs> it may be now or it may be later. But a Christ-rejecting world will eventually taste the awesome, faithful, eternal, and terrible wrath of Almighty God. Paul says God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. If grace and peace are the bookends of faith, then ungodliness and unrighteousness are those of rebellion. You see, ungodliness is a rejection of God, whereas unrighteousness is a rejection of God's standards. A man first denies God, 
Then he defies God's commandments. You know, 50 years ago, Bible reading and prayer were a regular part of our public school curriculum. And at the time, the top disciplinary problems educators faced were chewing gum, talking out of turn, and being late for class. Today, we've eliminated God from the classroom. We've excluded him from the subject matter. We've outlawed prayer. We've made it illegal for teachers to read or consult the Bible. And now in our schools, we have metal detectors that screen for guns and knives. Police dogs sniff out drugs. Girls don't go to the restroom by themselves for fear of being raped. Now I realize our problems are more complex than just the absence of Bible reading. But I think our public schools are a microcosm of the truth. Ungodliness produces unrighteousness. You see, when people stop believing in God, then there's no higher authority to govern their behavior. Right and wrong are up for grabs, if not downright irrelevant. You see, modern society, like ancient Rome, has suppressed the truth of God. And in doing so, we've opened wide the floodgates of unrighteousness. Verse 19 tells us, Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now, when we think of God revealing Himself to man, we usually think of the Bible. But even without the Bible, there is still much that we know about God. You know, the knowledge of God is revealed to men in at least two ways. First, there is the knowledge in them, in their hearts. And second, God reveals himself to them or in the heavens. In other words, you can look inward and you'll find evidence for God. You can look upward and you'll see proof of his eternal power. This is what Paul is telling us. Look inward. For just as animals have migratory instincts, did you know that men and women were also made with an intuitive knowledge for God? The Creator has implanted in each of us a homing device. It never shuts off until we find our way back to God. There's a longing in our hearts. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 9 expresses it well. God has put eternity in their hearts. You know, a childhood disease left Helen Keller, a very young girl, without sight and hearing and speech. And through the tireless work of her teacher, Ann Sullivan, Helen learned Braille, and she eventually learned how to talk. But when Ann tried to tell Helen about God, the girl said she already knew about her, already knew about God. She didn't know his name, but there was an innate knowledge that she experienced. That she knew he existed. Hey, there is an innate knowledge in each one of us. We know that there is a God. Look inward and you'll find evidence for God. But also look upward to the sky. And there too you'll behold the glory of God. Psalm 19 verse 1 put it, The heavens declared the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. It's been said nature was the first missionary. During the French Revolution... One of the revolutionary leaders, they bragged to a believing peasant. He said, we are going to pull down all that reminds you of God. The faithful Christian replied, 
will then pull down the stars. Just think, you're sitting on a ball 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs 6 septillion 588 sextillion tons and it hangs unsupported in space. Planet Earth spins at 1,000 miles per hour. In addition, it moves through space at 1,000 miles per minute. That's a lot of motion. And yet your Bible doesn't fall off your lap. It's amazing. It just sits there. I'm sorry, but I don't have enough faith to believe that that happens by chance. You see, a world of order necessitates an orderly God. Design necessitates a designer. You see, to an unbiased observer, God is an obvious reality. And yet, despite the enormous weight of evidence, many people, Paul says, suppress the truth. They resist it. They try to keep it under wraps. They excuse it away or write it off or ignore it. Yet Paul says the evidence is overwhelming. So overwhelming that mankind is without excuse. You know, it's not that we can't believe in God. It's that we won't believe in God. You see, here's why. If a person concedes that God exists, that means you're no longer the captain of your own ship. Admit there's a God and now you become accountable to that God. This is why sinful man suppresses the obvious. They suppress the truth. You know, it's scandalous for society which prides itself on tolerance to be tolerant of every ideology except biblical Christianity. And yet that's the world that we live in. People today suppress the truth. Several years ago, the school board in Pullen County, Illinois, they prohibited a school in their district from having a traditional Christmas nativity in the yard of their campus. The principal of the school was furious. In fact, he wrote the following on the school's message board. He said, the Board of Education is jealous of our nativity scene. For on our school board, they cannot find three wise men or a virgin. Well, I believe even the most ungodly, ardent atheist deep down inside knows the truth about God. And yet he hardens his heart and he suppresses that truth. Verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. And here's a warning for us. Did you know it's possible to know God, even receive His blessings, yet fail to acknowledge the giver of those blessings? They knew God, but they didn't glorify Him as God. Well, let me ask you, when your life goes well, do you acknowledge God? Do you give Him the glory? Or do you take the credit? Or do you just chalk it up to chance? Some people, even Christians, talk as if God is a non-issue. They take God for granted. Nor were they thankful, Paul writes, but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. You know, the world in Paul's day, they worshipped idols. They turned birds, and beasts, 
and bumblebees into gods. People today still worship birds and beasts and bees. In fact, on weekends, they live for the falcons and for the bulldogs and for the yellow jackets. Birds and beasts and bees. Hey, you can turn anything into an idol. Idolatry is giving a greater glory to the creature than to the creator. That's idolatry. It's placing a matter of secondary importance into the primary position in your life. That's idolatry. Idolatry is still alive and well. Paul says people became futile in their thoughts. He says professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, once people embraced idol, idolatry, once they rejected God and suppressed the truth about God, stop, smart people stopped thinking rationally. You see, this is what happens when people suppress the knowledge of God. Once a man rejects the most important thing, God then he tends to fall for anything. It never ceases to amaze me how stupid, brilliant people sometimes act. I mean, college professors, they'll refuse to believe in God, yet they'll read their horoscope religiously. Or they'll visit a, a palm reader. They might never pick up a Bible. They might dismiss outright that God became a man and visited our planet, yet they suggest that we've been visited from, by aliens from some strange world. It's amazing. Once you reject the truth, the idiotic things you'll believe. Evolution is another example of professing to be wise. They became fools. Despite the absence of missing links, despite the near zero probability of life forming by chance, despite criticisms from their own camp, despite not a single shred of hard scientific evidence to support their theories, they still believe in the evolution of life. Boy, the strength of a prejudice is always amazing. Famed philosopher Malcolm Muggeridge, he once said, I'm convinced the theory of evolution will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious an hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible gullibility that it has. Remember... Once I concede that there's a God, I become accountable to Him. And modern man doesn't want to be accountable to anyone but himself. This is why darkness has taken over. Verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. In other words, having worshipped animals, they began to live like animals. You know, over time, a person grows to resemble whatever it is that he or she worships. I mean, after teaching our kids that they've ascended from apes, why are we surprised when they monkey around? Teach a child that he's nothing but an animal and he'll be a party animal. Why expect a kid to develop spiritual appetites and moral standards if all he consists of are glands and hands. In today's morally relativistic world, we haven't given people a reason why one human whim is any more right or wrong than another. And so people today are driven by their lusts. They dishonor their bodies. They've lost any concept of the sanctity of human sexuality. They've been given over to uncleanness, Paul says. 
He says, who also exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Imagine a society that calls right wrong and calls wrong right. Homosexuality is no longer a dysfunction, a sin. It's now a legitimate preference. Abortion isn't murder. It's a woman's right to choose. The biblical family of one father and one mother is no longer the optimum environment for raising kids. Now, any configuration will do. You see, when pleasing and honoring the creature becomes more important than pleasing the creator, then truly the patients have taken over the asylum. Here's what's happened today. To avoid God's authority, we have suppressed his truth. And to convince ourselves that we're right, we have normalized the pathological and the deviant. We've created our own rules and ethics. Here's how topsy-turvy our world has become. Millions of dollars today are spent to save a few beached whales while we condone the murder of innocent babies. Here in Georgia, we threaten the water supply of millions of people to save a few snails in a Florida riverbed. In today's world, animal rights overshadow human rights. We worship the creature rather than the creator. In our world today, man has lost his uniqueness. Humans are no longer viewed as the image of God, just another animal. Rather than take dominion over nature as God has commanded us, we become its slave. People in governments are more concerned about damaging the environment than they are at bettering human life. Several years ago, I read where a doctor was anesthetizing cats, then shooting them with a BB gun in order to find ways to help humans who had been traumatized by gunshot wounds. In fact, his research was helping our soldiers, those that had been uh, injured in the Gulf War. And yet his experiments were shut down by animal rights activists who thought that Snowball and Fluffy were more important than Smith and Franklin. The truth is, man is not an animal. It's a confused society that puts animal life on a par with human life. Man is an eternal soul made in God's image. And in verse 26, it gets worse. He says, for this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. In his commentary on Romans, Donald Barnhouse, he writes this. The last nine verses in the first chapter of Romans are the most terrible in the Bible. The scene is frightful. In fact, three times in three verses, verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul tells us that God gave them up or God gave them over. In other words, God abandoned those who had abandoned him. You know, when a red light flashes on my dashboard it's an indication to me that there's something wrong with my car there is a serious problem likewise there are some cultural indicators that signal when a society is breaking down and falling apart there are some serious warnings in the remainder of chapter one Paul is going to give us 23 indicators of a society on the verge of collapse 
But notice this, the primary, the clear-cut manifestation that a people have abandoned God is the cultural acceptance and legitimization of homosexuality. Listen to what Paul tells us in the next two verses. He says, For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. I mean, when it comes to sexual deviance, women are usually less prone than men. But in Rome, even the women behaved in these unnatural ways. He says, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. This word debased, it means rejected or cast away. As far as God was concerned, they were ejected from the ball game. They were now on their own. You see, here's the ultimate destiny For anyone who suppresses God's truth, God eventually stops convicting them and wooing them back to himself. He gives them over to their own lies. He turns them over to their own deception. Their evil becomes set in stone. A debased mind participates in deviant behavior without the slightest tinge of guilt. In fact, it demands demands acceptance for its behavior. It grows militant in its quest for legitimization. And this describes today's homosexual agenda. I mean, homosexuals today are not content to practice their perversion privately. They want it normalized. They want to socialize children to see homosexuality as a legitimate lifestyle. They want to be a privileged group with special legal protections. They want to be force the rest of us to accept their lifestyle. See, they've justified their rejection of God's order, and as a result, God has given them up to their hard heart. Their behavior is set in stone. Understand, in Romans chapter 1, Paul tells us four truths about homosexuality. First of all, it's not natural. Second, it's not normal. Third, it's not noble. And fourth, it's not neutral. Let me take a moment and go through each one. Notice first, it's not natural. You know, both women and men left the natural use of the opposite sex to lust after those of the same sex. This is what Paul tells us. Yet a quick check of human anatomy will show that same-sex relationships are anatomically aberrant. All you got to do is take a quick peek at male and female genitalia and you notice a natural fit. It's not natural when you confuse the genders. You know, the Bible teaches that God created gender, that the sexes matter to God, that men are for women and women for men. Sexual expression is dictated by God, not left up to us. You know, the research often cited to support the theory that people are born homosexual, it's flawed, it's extremely dubious, but for the sake of argument, what if it were proven that some people do have a gay gene? 
Does that mean that we should condone and legitimize the behavior? I mean, if a person is biologically predisposed to alcoholism or depression, shouldn't we still try to relieve them of the disorder? If a person is prone to violence, should we legitimize all violence? Of course not. You still want to bring people back to God's norm. You still want to help them have a healthy life as God sees it and as God deems it. Dr. Robert Cronemeyer, he writes, with rare exceptions, homosexuality is neither inherited nor a result of some glandular disturbance or the scrambling of genes or chromosomes. Homosexuals are made, not born. From my 25 years' experience as a clinical psychologist, I firmly believe homosexuality is a learned response to early painful experiences. Thus, it can be unlearned. Also, homosexuality, though it's not natural, and it's also not normal. You see, I believe that there are two roots from which homosexual behavior stems. First is gender confusion. Through abuse or through neglect, people at early ages develop abnormal psychological attractions. This is the homosexual who may not understand why he feels the way he does. But notice when Paul describes homosexuality, he talks about burning in his lust. He talks about the homosexual who burns in his lust. Here's a homosexual who's eaten up with desire. Perhaps she's become bored with heterosexual experiences. In her quest for greater thrills, she flirts with a taboo. She sort of swings back and forth. This is the Madonna and Britney Spears pushing the boundaries. It's the Katy Perry, I kissed a girl phenomenon. This is what happened in the bathhouses of ancient Rome. You see, the brothels no longer satisfied, so perverse Romans adopted an anything-goes sexuality. Homosexuality, it's not natural, it's not normal, and it's not noble. Paul describes homosexual practice. He says, men with men committing what is shameful. Notice the Greek word, rendered shameful. It can also be translated deformed. You know, such practices twist God's intended order. You know, Ephesians 5 teaches us that heterosexual marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. Homosexuality, on the other hand, distorts and perverts that picture. It masculinizes the female and it feminizes the male. It disrupts the God-given roles and identities, which in turn distort biblical truth. It distorts the big truths that God is trying to communicate to society. It leads to the destruction of the family and ultimately the society. And finally, God says homosexuality is not neutral. Don't be naive. You can't buck nature and not pay the piper. And giving in to homosexual tendencies take a terrible toll. Unbridled selfishness, a seared conscience, damaged self-esteem, confusion and insecurity and loneliness and depression and manipulation are all the price of perversion. Not to mention the physical dangers. You know, even AIDS, even though AIDS has crossed over into the heterosexual population still, 70% of all victims of AIDS 
are homosexual or bisexual, 70%. Did you know that for the last 30 years, the FDA has prohibited male homosexuals from donating blood? Why? Because their sexual practices make them more prone to dangerous viruses. Homosexuality is not natural. It's not normal. It's not noble. And it's not neutral. But don't conclude that the homosexual himself is not loved by God. For he is. When Jesus went to the cross and took our sin on his shoulders, that included the sin of homosexuality. And if you embrace Jesus as your Lord, he will forgive you. And he will provide you a new identity. And he will teach you a new way of life. The gospel is the most powerful change agent on the planet. And it can even change the life of a homosexual and bring them into God's will. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. In fact, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he adds, and I'm so glad he does, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I love that phrase. And such were some of you. Jesus can break the bonds of homosexuality. Now, as I said earlier, homosexuality is an indicator that a society is in trouble, that it's strayed dangerously far from God. But there are other indicators as well. And Paul has a long list here in verses 29 through 31. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Now let me just run through this list quickly. Sexual immorality, the Greek word is pornea, from which we get our word pornography. It applies to all forms of illicit sexual arousal and activity. Wickedness, this is an interesting word. The original word means to work or to toil at wickedness. Well, you look at our culture today. There's a lot of people working hard at being evil. Covetousness is greed. It's the itch for more. Maliciousness is the desire to injure another person. Strife is the tendency to argue just for the sake of arguing. Backbiters. You remember the childhood jingle? Sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never harm me. That's not true. Flesh wounds heal a lot quicker than wounds inflicted by a sharp tongue on a psyche or on a person's reputation. Chrysostom said, slander is worse than cannibalism. Inventors of evil things. These guys work in Hollywood today. Disobedient to parents. This has become an epidemic in today's world. Undiscerning. That's the failure to learn from history. That's being unteachable. Untrustworthy. When members of a society no longer try to honor their agreements and keep their contracts and their promises, that society is on its way to ruin. Unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. Boy, it was said of Rome, how pitiless she was. 
Amid all the ruins of her cities, we find no hospital or orphanage in an age that made many orphans. Rome had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast made more bestial by her intelligence and splendor. You see, Rome was proof. Anarchy and brutality await a people that have no heart, that have lost their compassion for each other. And then notice verse 32. Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And I think Paul may have saved the worst for last. Think about this verse the next time you sit down to watch a raunchy movie. You know, you may never cheat on your wife, but do you cheer on the actor who does it in the movie? I mean, how often do we give placid approval to acts that God hates? Who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. When we watch, when we pay our money, when we subscribe, we're approving of the very things that God hates. It's called guilt by association. And we need to repent. You know, back in the day when pay phones were popular, I heard of a businessman who had put a call into his wife. He'd finished up the conversation and hung up when the phone rang again. He figured it was the operator telling him to insert another coin. It was the operator, but she didn't say anything about money. This is what she told him. Sir, I thought you'd like to know that just after you hung up, your wife told you that she loved you. What a nice gesture. And I think this is how we need to close Romans chapter 1. Even though our society today has hung up on God, He's still telling us that He loves us and that He'll forgive us if we repent. And this is the gospel. This is what we're going to be learning about in the book of Romans. The gospel. It is still the power of God to salvation to those who believe. And that's where we'll leave it tonight, the end of chapter 1. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts. We pray that you would help us in the days ahead, Lord, uh, to appreciate the gospel. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.